taking any arrows out of your quiver, you're not ruling anything out. Good morning. Sunday morning. Good morning. Thursday morning. <laughs> Before we get started here, uh, I just want to hop on a quick story that I saw when I first woke up this morning. We are early on Thursday morning here. Uh, I know my eyes are a little swollen. Uh, early morning is not a good look for me, so bear with me today. But I got a quick story about the Amy Coney Barrett nomination that I just want to touch on before we get into things. Uh, we got to cover the VP debate and stuff. But Democratic senators have started meeting with Barrett for some unknown reason. And so she's basically been on uh, what someone on Twitter called a charm offensive, uh, which is to say she's been trying to meet with everybody to gain some legitimacy. And uh, these senators, who some of them might be yours, uh, are helping out in that. We got Senator Feinstein, Leahy, uh, Durbin, White House, Klobuchar, Coons, and Booker. All of them have, uh, over the past couple of days, met with Barrett about, oh, judicial independence. What's your judicial philosophy? And I don't understand in the first place why Democrats are surrendering on this. They've had so much power and so many things they could do. They only had the last 46 days to the election, and then they gain an extra senator if Martha McSally goes down in Arizona to Mark Kelly. But instead, what Chuck Schumer has done is completely mess this up. He doesn't seem to care one bit. I don't even think he really cares in the end. And what's insane is the Democrats have spent the last, God, 20 years talking about the court and how Republicans are going to fill the court. What about RBG? You can't vote against us. What about RBG? Absolutely insane that they would ditch the main thing they fear-mongered on. Their base is angry about RBG. They're still mourning her. It's been a couple of weeks. And all they've done is just surrender point after point and retreat point after point until at this point the hearing is going to be October 12th and there is no plan to try and stop it before November 3rd. McConnell is running the show. So shame on Feinstein, shame on Booker, shame on Durbin, who is my former senator, for ever lending any sort of legitimacy to this process when we are maybe three weeks out from the election now. Absolutely insane and embarrassing. But I'll get off my soapbox. Let's run the intro. Hey folks, welcome to Social Point. I'm Seamus McGinnis. Before we get into things today, I just want to thank everyone who watched the first episode. I expected maybe eight views on that first one. So everyone who took the time to check it out, thank you so, so much. And if you're back again, thank you even more. It means the world to me that people are willing to watch. Uh, and before we get into it, uh, I know that in the last episode I talked about uh, being on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, but now we actually are. So there will be links down below uh, to subscribe to the podcast format if you'd prefer the audio only for your commute or something. But we got lots to get into. We got to talk about the VP debate. And then we have a can't miss climate story about Exxon and basically their willingness to basically their willingness to prioritize profit margins over the future of the planet. But we got to start with the wonders of Mr. Michael Pence. So the first vice presidential debate was last night. Uh, honestly, far more boring than that first one. Uh, obviously, when you take Trump out of the equation, things are going to slow down. But man, was it a slog. It felt 
like at least six hours. I mean, the first one felt long, but in sort of a embarrassing slow motion car wreck kind of way. But it also kind of flew by like a car wreck would. But this was just painful, absolutely painful. So we got a couple of things to get into about it. First off, just surface level verdict. Kamala absolutely leveled my pence. Uh, it was an embarrassment. Uh, she laid out a number of failures of the administration. She opened strong with that speech about COVID and about how they sat by. They knew in January 28th, which she did Rubio on that point a little bit. She repeated it a little too much, but that they sat by, that they just had no bearing, no care for human life, for American lives. And the best Pence could come up with was, we trust the American people, which 200,000 people are dead. It was appalling that he would head up a task force for it, where we still have mask protests on the daily around this country, that he would be willing to just say, we trust the American people, and we've done a wonderful job responding immediately, when they sat on their hands until they absolutely had no other choice. And this is going to be a pretty common theme of the day, but Pence lied. Pence lied a lot. Trump didn't even respond to COVID by shutting down travel from China, and that was some claim where Biden opposed it. All of that was BS. The airlines were the ones that had to shut down travel between China and the U.S. Trump took an extra month after that, after February 6th, in order to do it, and there was still business waivers that let people go back and forth. So the insane fear-mongering over China, which I personally fear, from both Biden and Trump is going to lead us into some kind of new Cold War, but that is a very much post-election issue. There's too much else to talk about. But more generally speaking, Mike Pence was just an embarrassment last night. Absolute hot garbage, total lies all the way through. It was embarrassing. It was racist. It was pandering. It was condescending. What a just embarrassing performance. You know, Trump and his sycophants and Trump and himself are obsessed with this sort of alpha male persona. And the fact that Pence was willing to come out here and just on every single issue, every single valid critique that Kamala had of the administration, all that he could respond with was, how dare you, Senator? How, how dare I find it? I find it very offensive that you would you would ever insinuate that. Absolute insanity to come out there and have that be your defense. I can't think of anything more beta and more just constantly being the victim when you've inflicted such terror and fear and such just reign of evil on the American people for four years to come out there and play like you guys are the victims is appalling. And it was amazing because you could truly just see his soul rot on stage. I mean, a fly landed on his head. I mean, everyone's been talking about it, obviously. But it's just uh, to have, he knows he's lying to you. He knows that he's not living in reality, but he doesn't care. And he's shown that he doesn't care because he's willing to just prostrate himself for the, the great leader, Donald Trump, and will not have any integrity about what he'll stand for or the the pseudo-Christian values that he, he supposedly fights for, stood for none of that. All he had to do last night was prostrate himself in front of the, the evils of the past four years of the Trump administration. And all he had to say was, take me into your arms, history. Take me into the annals of history as the white supremacist, the, the destructive 
evil, xenophobic, homophobic piece of rotten garbage that I am, and the flies will find me because history is not going to remember him well. And I don't understand how he could ever un believe that anything less than soulless lack of integrity will be how we remember him. Let's get into a little bit of the details because Kamala's performance was solid, but it was undergirded by kind of a, a lack of trust in her persona. And let me tell you why. Uh, you might remember the first Democratic primary debate. If you watched it, Kamala fired broadside at Biden about opposing busing. And she had her, I was that little girl moment. That was her chance to be the front runner. And for a couple of days, it looked like she might actually be. But of course, she had no actual policy disagreements with Biden at any point. So it really had no meaning. She carried no momentum out of it. And really what killed all of the momentum off of that shot that she took was the fact that maybe eight minutes after the debate, her campaign put out, I was that little girl shirts, as if that was somehow improvised. It was embarrassing. You cannot telegraph that you're writing these lines beforehand and then act like it's somehow the anthem of your campaign. That shows exactly how disingenuous you are. And that's kind of a common theme through Kamala's stuff. Because in the moment, there's kind of this feeling of it's, it's uneven. Sometimes she's really adept at what she does. Sometimes she's very effective. She's an effective communicator. She had a great answer on trade, which I'll come back to in a second. Uh, she was good on climate, sort of. And she had a great couple of points about COVID. But then at other times, she's got her awkward fake laugh that I don't know who taught her that, but I don't think it's as effective of a political technique as she seems to think it is. And more than anything, she just constantly will contradict her own strength by just showing how false it really is. I mean, she went on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert uh, right when she was picked to be Biden's VP, and he didn't exactly ask her a gotcha question. He just doesn't have short-term memory loss. And he remembered that in the debate with Biden, she ripped into him and basically called him a racist. And of course, you could just answer, well, I understand that he's changed. That was when he was eulogizing Strom Thurmond. He's come a long way. Has he? But the point is, she could have said that, and instead, she said this. And how do you go from being such a passionate opponent on such bedrock principles for you, and, and now you guys seem to be pals. It was a debate. <laughs> Not everybody landed punches like you did, though. It I was mean. a debate. <laughs> so you don't mean it. It was a debate. And the problem is that really exposes exactly how much of a politician she is. That's her genuine answer. I mean, it really is. It's just a debate, Stephen. And so that kind of was... A shadow haunting me throughout this debate because as much as I want to believe that she can't stand Mike Pence and just wants to smirk at him the whole time, I can't shake the feeling that maybe there's a little bit of, it's just a debate, Stephen, going on. But we got a couple of things to touch on in her performance. So obviously I said the opening speech on COVID was pretty solid. She talked about the 200,000 deaths and how that could have been avoided. Uh, she got rolled a bit by the format after that. Really, the format of this whole thing felt like it was chosen by the Trump administration. And obviously, it was bipartisan. 
But the fact that there was this sort of separation that didn't happen and there was a lot less back and forth meant that Mike Pence could just kind of get on his soapbox for three to four minutes at a time and just make up a fantasy world and then we go back to reality for a little bit. But he could just kind of bloviate and throw out so many lies that she couldn't possibly try to disprove all of them in her responses because she'd be there for an hour per response. But there was a really weird omission from Kamala and, and I know I've been talking about her COVID questioning and she hit a couple of good lines of, uh, on Pence and on Trump on COVID and the, she worked really hard to make that appeal to people who are suffering economically as a result of the crash, as a result of the lack of stimulus. But pretty glaringly, talk about the lack of stimulus. I mean, Trump literally, what, the day before the debate, killed any kind of stimulus before the election. And he is holding the American people hostage over this. He's saying, vote for me or you're not going to get stimulus. Vote for me or you won't see anything till February. And God knows we're in the middle of a childcare apocalypse where half of childcare businesses are closing. God knows that musicians and record labels and anyone making art independently and anyone who's been out of work, anyone who wasn't deemed an essential worker, God knows a fifth of major cities are food insecure right now. Uh, I believe Houston is more like 40% is food insecure. Uh, over half of our major cities are going through serious financial problems, according to an NPR poll. And in the middle of all that, you're not going to touch the fact that Trump is just going to kill stimulus. That should be the number one thing that we're hitting on right now. I mean, that is by far political suicide. To 30 days before, less than 30 days before an election, you're going to say, no checks for you. It was an easy layup for Trump. It was an easy giant windfall in the polls and he completely ditched it to hold people hostage as if they're going to react well to that absolutely insane from trump i swear he's trying to throw this election at this point because that is one of the worst electoral strategies i've ever heard one of the most just insane things to do politically you're just trying to hurt people at this point like actively going out of your way to hurt people but that is pretty common to the trump administration but the fact that kamala and probably biden isn't going to hit him on that day in and day out is even more of an oversight i mean how can you i don't understand moving into a couple other specifics they both were a glaring failure on foreign policy uh, pence of course is trying to pick a fight with china and kamala dodged the question and then pence brought up killing soleimani which all right, you're going to brag about being pro-life and then brag about a drone strike that almost started World War III for like five minutes. Uh, okay, we'll come back to that though. But then uh, Kamala turns around and says, well, you dismantled the Iran deal, which is one of the worst things that the Trump administration has done. Well, I don't know about worst. The list is far too long at this point. But Kamala brought that up and then says, well, Iran is building a nuclear arsenal, which fear-mongering over Iran is the last thing we need right now. Everyone knows that Trump has for years thought about starting a war to try and win the election. And the last thing you need to do is lend any legitimacy to that. But that's really a common theme, theme in the, the democratic approach to these debates, to the story that I talked about right at the start here with Amy Coney Barrett is there's a feeling of legitimizing that I see and hear your thoughts to conservatives and just go, I see you and I hear you and let's engage in the marketplace of ideas. And there is no engaging a fascist and authoritarian government on some kind of 
conversational ground. You can't seed them ground and they continually legitimize the insane and absolutely dangerous arguments that the right makes. And then there was another failure on climate. And believe me, I know Pence was a lot worse. I know I'm ripping on Kamala right now. But there is some valid critiques that we need to have because we need to stay clear-eyed on the issues on, on both of these sides. And I'm not trying to both sides here. Uh, there was that question from the eighth grader at the end that was essentially asking for a one-party state. I mean, can't we all just get along? I mean, that is the Obama brand of 08 politics that was about reaching across the aisle. And look how that turned out because the next guy was not nearly as concerned with that. But to the point about climate, uh, she a couple of times stood up for her climate record. Pence tried to rip her on the USMCA, which I will also come back to trade in a second. I know there's a lot we got to get to. But he was coming at her over her record that she voted against the USMCA because she's some climate extremist, that she didn't want to uh, engage on the trade deal because it wasn't strong enough on climate. And she stood by that. She nodded. And that was good because he, she was absolutely correct. And we should not be engaging in trade deals that don't involve some kind of emissions reductions, at least at the very, very minimum. But to the broader point about climate, uh, there has been this kind of strategy by the Biden campaign that they want to win Pennsylvania based on not banning fracking, which just seems like an excuse to capitulate to oil companies. But you know, uh, the, the poll lead in Pennsylvania does not seem like a fracking margin, but I could be wrong. I don't, you know, I don't run the campaign, but yeah, she, she came out and proudly said, Joe Biden will not ban fracking. And then you're going to say that you believe the climate scientists Frack, fracking is known to be one of the most dangerous and harmful things to the environment. So to act like we're the party who believes in science, but only to a point, only to the point where it's politically convenient. And then forget about it because we don't actually stand for the Green New Deal. We don't actually want to ban fracking. We just want to use climate, like most things, as a political tool. And speaking of political tools, uh, let's talk about the racism question. Because in the first debate, Chris Wallace asked a stupid question about race as if two old white guys that have spent their whole careers, at least Trump in private life and Biden very explicitly in public life, attacking black people's right to live in this country, their right to freedom in this country. The fact that we would ask them as if they are some debate over freedoms. But it got worse because the moderator, Susan Page, who was from, I believe, USA Today, asked an embarrassing question about Breonna Taylor, which the fact that there's some kind of debate question to be like, oh, let's use, let's use this dead woman who cops murdered in cold blood in her own home. Let's use her as a political tool. That's insane. And Susan Page should be embarrassed by her question and Kamala and Pence, which Pence is so far from this that of course he's not going to be, but Kamala should be embarrassed for trying to engage on the merits of this question. He's asking someone, oh, explain systemic racism in this country. You have two minutes. Is absolutely insane absolutely embarrassing that it could be treated like a debate issue that black people and their right to continue life are being treated as a political football in both debates now 2020 has just been the year of that we saw all the corporations do that and it's embarrassing it is tone deaf it is insensitive and just insane that they're going to use that but kamala's response was also woefully insufficient she brought up george floyd which okay continue. And then she said, well, he would be alive today if we had banned chokeholds. Absolutely not. 
I don't know who has that in their head, but that is so insane that you would ever think that that would have ever changed Derek Chauvin's mind when he had his knee on his neck as if, oh, wait, is there something in the rule book for this? Come on, come on. But we do need to talk about Pence's response because he said, oh, I, I trust I trust the Justice Department on this one. And then he turns to Kamala, and just like he did throughout the night, he does his faux outrage thing of, how dare you, Senator? How, how dare you insinuate? I think it's offensive to everyday Americans that, that you would ever say that law enforcement could have a, a racial bias. Where have you been? Where have you been for the entire history of this country? And obviously, that is not a surprising response from Mike Pence, but it still is bracing to hear it out loud and not just that but the condescending faux rage over it that I, I i'm offended by that to complain about snowflakes through 2016 and then to come out there and act amazed and and offended over the existence of racism in this country is just ghoulish it's insane but it's a part of a larger point where you know he's going to talk about being pro-life and then say brianna taylor I, I trust the justice system. I, I feel for the Taylor family, and that's all I got on this. And the fact that he has the, the, the gall to argue that he's pro-life when he's willing to say these kinds of things, and AOC already kind of made this point on Twitter, but the fact that he's willing to, you know, deprive of sexual education, that he's willing to, you know, kneecap access to any kind of, oh, free handouts, that you're going to take away welfare. You're going to take away any right to birth control and contraceptives. You're going to take away people's right to health care. Oh, if you have a pre-existing condition, yeah, screw you. That's insane. And then you're going to force someone to have a child. And then you're also going to take away SNAP benefits. You're going to take away any sort of child welfare because no free handouts. And then you're going to not give people health care. You're not going to give the kid health care. And by the way, if you work a minimum wage job, you're not going to be able to afford housing. So exactly where in all of that timeline, in all of that process, are you being pro-life? And it's part of a, a larger sort of paradigm of the way that Mike Pence clearly thinks and anyone who supports him or stands with him is he's living in a fantasy world. He's living in a white, pro-life, Christian utopia. And his wealth and his power and his ability to completely insulate himself from reality has allowed him to totally ignore the fact that that utopia is built on the backs of an oppressive patriarchy, on the back of a racial caste system in this country, and on abusive worker-employer relations. And all of that is the foundation on which his little pretty white house is built. You do not have any leg to stand on, especially when you are responsible directly for the deaths of 200,000 Americans, and then God knows what other evils you've carried out over the past four years as a result of that administration. It is appalling, again, it is ghoulish, it is soulless, and Mike Pence should be ashamed of himself. And I hope that he goes in the history books as just a soulless ghoul and nothing more. All right, but tell us how you really feel, Seamus. I know I'm, uh, you know, on a bit of a rant this morning. I'm running on coffee and anxiety and, uh, and midterm pressure. So I'm a little short on time this week. Uh, you know, just running high. Uh, Mike Pence brings out a bit of a, the rage demon in us all, I hope. But we do have another story to cover, and that is a pretty much ExxonMobil's manifesto against human life. I mean, there is a clear 
intention by oil companies more generally, but by this company to just completely end life as we know it on Earth. And it is just, the evil is appalling. Again, really the word of the day. Basically what they want to do, there's a, a leaked memo from Bloomberg Green uh, that they found that there's a plan from pre-COVID, so that could change, but they want to increase their oil production with a $210 billion investment plan. Except that means that they want to increase their emissions by 17% by 2025. And so that would take their numbers from 122 million metric tons in 2017 to 143 in 2025. And they've launched these uh, self-help emission reduction programs. But if you take a look at this graph, I mean, you could see the increase over the years and the tiny amount of reduction that they want to do is embarrassing. I mean, the fact that they want to increase it by 21 tons and then, oh, look, we're, we're making a couple of changes at the margins. That is so sad. And then we got to talk about scope because most oil companies will report their scope one, their scope two, and their scope three emissions. But Exxon only does one and two. So your scope one is your direct in output. So you're putting out oil, you're putting out whatever energy. These are our direct outputs. That's our carbon coming out of that. Uh, Source two includes your energy demand. So if you're pulling electricity, if you're pulling coal in order to do that production, then we're going to include that into your source two. But far, far bigger is your source three because source three is the supply chain. So from the very start, from the steel that makes your oil rigs out to the gas that gets used by your consumer at a gas station. Across that supply chain, if you add it all up, that tends to be about five times your scope one and your scope two. And so when Exxon is talking about that 143 million number, they really mean it's far, far, far larger. And so that 21 million ton increase would actually look more like when you talk about scope three, 100 million metric tons. And that adds up, as the Bloomberg article says, to about the additional emissions of Greece. So you're adding another country onto the world, another developed country onto the world of industrial pollution into the atmosphere right at the same time that, you know, fully, probably not. But a lot of other oil companies have said, oh, we're trying to actually reduce emissions. Uh, if you take a look here, this graph shows, you know, they could do better. But the fact that Exxon isn't even going to try to even pose as if they're concerned about the climate. And instead, all of their growth projections are based on almost a doubling in oil demand over the next decade. That is insane. Oil demand's been going down, and it should. It rightfully should. And the idea that you want to increase the consumption of oil right now, right, is what everyone is talking about. And the biggest issue to voters right now, and not that Exxon cares about American voters or any, or any of us for that matter, but... The fact that this is a major issue for people and climate is looming. I mean, it is, again, the biggest existential threat to our planet. And for them to just totally ignore it and put an extra country of emissions into the world is ignorant and destructive on a, a, on a scale that I can't even begin to fathom. I, I, it really comes down to what happens when your corporate boards and your, and your director level positions are filled by 70 year olds who are gonna die before they have to face any of these consequences is they will impose any kind of evil on future generations. I mean, my grandkids are probably gonna have a lower quality of life than I do purely because of the evil, completely inhumane and, and I, you know, just the, the lack of humanity is, 
is shocking. But their willingness to prioritize profit margins over the future of human existence is very clear because they know that, well, my kids can probably just fly to Mars with Elon Musk and I'll be dead before then. So it's not my problem. And so while we can't see the actual memo itself from the way that the Bloomberg reporters describe it, it is essentially a manifesto against human life. There's this idea of the uh, Kuznets curve or the environmental Kuznets curve, which is to say that as nations grow, uh, you know, you have to industrialize, which means your emissions go up. And then as you get richer, you'll get cleaner energy and then it'll go down and then you'll become totally environmentally sustainable. And we are seeing, seeing China try to move towards that because they have been probably the biggest culprit in pollution growth. But, you know, they are starting to make an effort. Is it enough? Absolutely not. But really very few countries other than maybe Germany and a couple others are truly making a drastic enough move to try and actually save the planet. But the fact that, you know, the U.S. is, is continuing on this path that U.S. oil companies are showing complete disdain for the future of human life is living proof. The U.S. itself is living proof if the most wealthy nation in history wasn't able to ride down that Kuznets curve in time, how exactly do we plan global development of, of other continents at this point to the level that our country is at by ever being able to sustain human life on this planet? Because it is impossible. It is impossible if we try to industrialize in the way that other countries have and we don't actually exert external pressure. I mean, you can see the U.S. does not just automatically bring down emissions. You have to apply pressure. And the pressure has to come from people and it has to come from climate organizations. And if we are not involved in that coming next year, we do not have time to waste. There is just no time to waste. But I want to close with a point about corporations and about the climate more generally. Because Exxon's total disdain for our future is not driven by somehow the, the inhumanity of Darren Woods. Although I do not doubt his inhumanity, to be clear. But it is much larger than that. Because if you replaced him with somebody else, the same exact incentives apply, the same exact bonuses apply, the same exact dividend payments apply to the board of directors, and nothing would change. It's just like if you talk about bankers. Everyone says, oh, you know, if you put better people in there. No, it's the system itself. It's the people working those jobs have to make a living somehow. Does Darren Woods have to make a living doing what he does? No. I still don't doubt the complete ethical and moral depravity of these people. But they're driven by something a lot larger. And the system of capital, the way it stands today, has no accountability to communities. It has no accountability to the future. And I, you know full well as I do that ExxonMobil is never going to face consequences for the massive damage that they're going to try and do to the climate that God knows how many millions of people that will kill over the years as a result of their ignorance now. And that's a greater point here is that corporations have no accountability to the people. They have no worker control. They exploit their labor. And all they do is slowly but surely, well, a lot more than slowly destroy this planet. And if we do not find a way to reorganize the way that these corporations work, to have them more accountable to communities, to have them run by workers and not by CEOs who have no connection to the real world and to the real world consequences of their actions, we are headed for planetary doom. Well, it seems to be a, a growing pattern here that we end on a pretty dark note, but what can I say? These are dark times. But 
Thank you so, so much for watching episode two of Social Point. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at socialpointpod. Uh, the Spotify and Apple podcast links will be below. And if you get a chance to listen to the podcast format, that would be great. Or follow us there and subscribe on YouTube, wherever you're watching this. But thank you so, so much for watching. And I will see you guys on Monday. Take care of yourselves.